Grace and peace. You're listening to United We Pray. Taking racial struggles to the throne of grace, United We Pray is a ministry devoted to prayer about racial strife, especially between Christians. We want to help Christians pray and think about race in ways that are biblical and helpful, clear and hopeful. You can learn more about our work at uwepray.com. That's U-W-E-P-R-A-Y.com, where you can find articles, previous episodes, and more. Grace and peace, friends. Thank you for listening. I'm Austin Souter, and I'm joined today by Ryan King. Ryan is pastor of Grace Baptist Church Wood Green in London, England. He's in Birmingham, Alabama today as part of a return to the U.S. for rest and relaxation. We're very pleased to have him. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Austin. It's great to be here. How's the trip been so far? Uh, It's been fantastic. It's my first time to the Southern USA since 2015, and um, I'm joined by my wife, uh, who's in the UK for the first time ever. Uh, The UK, USA. That's all good. (laughs) Now, where all have you been? Um, We've started in Nashville, went up to Louisville, uh, went down to Knoxville, and across to Memphis, into Arkansas, where I'm from. Okay. And then to Florida, or flew from Arkansas to Florida, and now we're in Birmingham. So really just a tour of various places where I have friends and family and really saying thank you to a lot of people who've poured into our lives. And uh, do you have any good food while you're there? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the food has been amazing. And I, I really love barbecue. Uh, it does not matter, you know, how it's made or uh, what texture the sauce has or what its base is. I love barbecue and I will eat just about anything that is good. Smoked and sauced. Oh yes. Smoked, smoked and sauced. So we'll have to get you some more of that before you leave Birmingham. But uh, while we have you, can you just tell us a little bit more about your background? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in a place called Tumbling Shoals, Arkansas in the Grooves Ferry Lake uh, area that's sort of north central I suppose and uh, moved to the UK to London uh, 20 years ago this April Wow! so I first got to know you when you were connected with us for an article we'll link to that in the show notes you wrote that as a young man growing up in the south the idea and philosophy of the lost cause was appealing to you was wondering if you could get into that a little bit more, explain sort of what it is for listeners who might not know and sort of why that was attractive to you as a young man in Arkansas. Yeah, so the lost cause is this concept that essentially the South will rise again, uh, that the Civil War was very much an invasion of the South, of the Southern states, and it was an intrusion of the federal government on individual states. I was somewhat acquainted with various threads of it uh, growing up, but I really got into it after moving to the UK, and I think it had a lot to do with being there and having some sense of heritage, some sense of home, feeling oh, okay. displaced. That's know? interesting. Yeah, because it's you're you're in a completely foreign environment and I loved history, I loved civil war history, you know, but you get a bad batch of something and it will it will turn your mind. And so, you know, Shelby Foote's books uh, on the Civil War were on many bookshelves that I saw growing up 
and they were at the library, and I started reading them, and they have a fairly pro-Confederate emphasis. And uh, there's other little bits and pieces here and there, uh, curriculums and things like that, that uh, I would have been exposed to at, at some level. But what, what's interesting about the variety that I picked up, there was no apology for slavery in me. Uh, I recognized that slavery was evil. There was no dehumanization of, of black people, at least um, explicitly. There was at no intentional level anything against black brothers and sisters. By that point in London, I was actually in a black majority church living, serving in black majority circles. This actually demonstrates that the whole, uh, you know, proximity breeds empathy thing has some flaws. We can be close and still dead wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we can. And that was, that was me. I had, on the one hand, a view of the South as, as this great Christian civilization or whatever, and its leaders as godly gentlemen, heroic people who loved their country and loved uh, the rights of their states and were simply defending their people from an unjust invasion. I had rationalized away the slavery connection because I knew it was evil. I mean, I, Harriet Tubman was another hero. I could hold Harriet Tubman up on one hand and Robert E. Lee up on the other and not see the inconsistency. I was that confused. And I, I believe it was, um, yeah, very much uh, just confusion. And the way as I, as I was working through all of this content and reading all of this, I was, you know, valorizing these men and now I'm very much the opposite in many, in many ways. Well, I want to hear about that switch too, because you mm. like this stuff so much you, you were writing about it and blogging about it, right? Yeah. And then yeah. your dad well, found it. I blogged about it once as part of a planned series. Uh, the, the, the catalyst for that series actually, where I was going to start in history and, and meander my way through various essays and things like that, getting to the present day. And I was headed to a place where I was convinced that the South would rise again, that there were deep fissures in our nation um, that were eventually just going to uh, to really uh, cause severe problems. I don't think that my diagnosis was wrong. I don't think my analysis was wrong about the brokenness I saw developing in our nation, but my... Uh, way of getting there was very wrong, and uh, the side that I would have been on uh, was wrong. I thought, again, the South will, will rise again, and that might be a very good thing. And uh, I, I, I have a memory of uh, a group of pastors actually turning on a brother from Illinois who was giving a, a devotional at a missions conference, no less. And he, in his devotional, used an illustration, just in passing, about the Civil War and slavery, and the whole room turned on him. He did not finish the devotional. They, they all just began arguing about the cause and the reason for the Civil War, and that left an impact on me. But I was surrounded by so many men that I respected 
who I assumed these are spiritual, godly men, and all of them except the the the, the guy that was trying to give the devotional seemed to be the ones who were speaking, the loudest at least, seemed to be uh, saying that you know the South was was righteous and uh, and good. So that's where my essays, my blogs were headed. I never got anywhere close to that. I literally posted one. And my, uh, uh, you know, my dad knew that I had this blog. He'd encouraged me to use my writing gifts. And uh, when he logged in to read it, <laughs> you were the house shook. <laughs> the house shook. I'll never forget. Um, yeah. So I, I quickly learned that um, uh, intent can be one thing, but impact is another altogether. And uh, it was a long time before I blocked again. <laughs> well, praise God, I mean, for just godly fathers. And my dad is an influence on me in terms of, you know, understanding race and injustice. It was, that was influential on me early on. So I'm very grateful for that. You have since then become very interested in black history. Yes. Was that an immediate connection? Like was when, when your dad sort of straightened you out? Hmm. Uh, did that happen right away or did that come later? The weird thing is it, it came before, like I said, I, I had, uh, on the one hand, I would look up to a guy like Robert E. Lee and Harriet Tubman. And I actually had won, uh, some sort of prize as a kid for creating a timeline that I put a great deal of effort into on the life and work of Harriet Tubman. So I, I was interested in, in her, um, Martin Luther King was always someone that was kind of there that was increasingly interesting to me as I um, grew in my own uh, pursuit of ministry and pastoral ministry and preaching, even just the uh, the art of rhetoric and delivery. Can't touch him. I mean, no, he's, no. he's, yeah. Incredible. And uh, so I really developed that over the, the years. And now uh, this, this year I didn't have much capacity to, but previous years, I think starting in 2018, I started writing every October. Our Black History Month in the UK is in October. Uh, so I, I started writing articles about uh, basically the convergence of Black history, British history, and Christian history, which I felt was a niche that I, I wasn't seeing explored very much. And I was writing particularly for the blessing and benefit of my congregation which is, uh, though ethnically diverse, is uh, a black majority congregation. And they um, are people that are often not equipped with stories from um, their, their culture and uh, various backgrounds in, in positive ways. So I, I really wanted to equip my congregation that God's given me pastoral care of with these resources, but also I, I wanted to listen to these voices myself and not elevate my voice about them, but really elevate their stories and their voices. That's really good. And that's harder to do than it might sound. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. So there's a lot of quotes in my, good. <laughs> in my blogs. Um, and I try not to, um, color my presentation of these these men and women uh, in a way that dominates uh, the, the narrative, but let their story speak for itself. 
So you are a white guy from Arkansas pastoring a majority black church in London, as one does. Absolutely. You you have this sort of awakening to issues of ethnic unity and this fascination with black history. Like how how do you feel like the stuff you were reading and sort of that as a hobby prepared you for pastoral ministry in your specific context? Like do you see the Lord's providence there? Oh yes. Oh yes. Um my my love for black history, my love for the black preaching tradition, uh, if we can speak in homogenous terms like that, uh, it might be a bit broad, but um, the the prophetic African-American tradition, uh, as it's sometimes called, uh, all of those things have been, in God's providence, a part of my life, a part of my, uh, my upbringing, my adolescence, young adulthood, and have definitely prepared me for now over a, a decade of pastoral ministry in, in that context. So um, I definitely see the Lord's hand, yeah. So we have listeners from all over the world, as it turns out, and we try to talk about things in ways that are applicable, not just in the US, but to an inter- international audience as well. Um, but Isaac and I have a, have a fairly limited American outlook. I mean, I was a missionary kid in Nepal, but apart from that, uh, we've between the two of us, we've spent most of our time in the States. I wanted to pivot, if we can, to ask you about Ukraine. Yeah. Your wife is Ukrainian, is that correct? That is correct, yes. So I, I mentioned that because you've spent some time there. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know the Ukrainian situation better than most, I think, of our listeners. Um, when Americans look at the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, we don't often think about ethnicity because in the U.S., ethnicity tracks with skin color in ways that make it pretty easy to spot. So when Americans mm-hmm. see images from the front in Ukraine, we see white people. Mm-hmm. Is there an ethnic component to that conflict that we don't understand? I think there definitely is. The American discourse is very dominated, understandably, because of the history, by a black-white binary. That is not true globally. The issue is not reduced globally, it's actually expanded. In the UK, for example, I have experienced prejudice. I'm a white man, uh, but I have experienced prejudice because I'm an American. And it's been very clear to me that I will never, even if I were to get British citizenship, I will never be truly accepted. Even if I've lived most of my life there, I'll never be truly accepted as one of us in the UK. In Ukraine, there are many ethnicities. In Russia, there are many ethnicities. And I'm not speaking in terms of black, white, brown, various shades. We're not speaking about color at all. There are different ethnic groups that are historically within the borders of Ukraine and different ethnic groups that are historically within the boundaries of Russia. But if we pause for a moment and just homogenize the two nations, Ukraine and and Russia, and speak of Ukrainians, in a national sense and Russians in a national sense. The reason uh, there, there is such strife really has a great deal to do with Russian imperialism in the form of the Soviet Union. One of the narratives that has uh, been promoted by the Russian government uh, way back into Soviet times is one of superiority to the West 
because they do not have the dark legacy of colonizing vast portions of Africa and um, enslaving black people. Thus, when Western people were critiquing, particularly Americans were critiquing the Soviet Union and the whole concept and, and the could be the gulag system or the atrocities that were being inflicted upon jews or uh, upon uh, nationalities within the soviet socialist republics i.e ukrainians during the holodomor which saw millions killed um, uh, through enforced starvation you know when, when americans critiqued that soviets would respond with posters and pictures of lynched black men what about the Negroes is the literal translation of the uh, propaganda posters that they distributed. Um, they would have that plastered across the drawing or the picture. So that's where our, uh, our term whataboutery or whataboutism comes from. And they were very skilled at that. And so now, actually, there are a lot of justice-oriented or justice-minded people that have been oddly quiet on the Ukraine issue and some have actually um, taken a more pro-Russian stance simply because they're missing this crucial dynamic. The Russians were never colonizers. That's actually not true. The Russians were never um, imperialists. Completely untrue. Uh, while the West was devouring Africa, uh, Russia was devouring uh, Eurasia. And um, 30 years ago, the Ukrainian nation was one of many that broke free from that. And although in the 90s, uh, there was some acceptance of that, I believe, in Russia, for most of those 30 years, the nation of, uh, of Russia, the Russian Federation, has struggled to accept the national sovereignty, independency, and autonomy of Ukraine. And so that, that is a major component of what's happening now. How do we see this ethnic strife being played out in popular discourse? Is it history or are we seeing some of the same kinds of ethnic tropes and that sort of thing show up? History, but also uh, three decades of ethnic tropes via propaganda. Ukrainians are dehumanized, have been dehumanized in uh, myriad publications. The, uh, astonishing scale of stereotypes and uh, tropes very similar to the way black people were portrayed in the USA. Uh, the, the minstrel shows and things like that that we see um, from the 20th century, that type of treatment is given to Ukrainians by, by Russians. Uh, and there, there's just a, a, to the point that, you know, I was reading just this morning, uh, people who they cannot stand to hear the word Ukraine. They cannot stand to hear the, the word Ukrainians. They have in their own language words that are uh, a, a ethnic slurs for Ukrainians, the um, uh, uh, anti-Ukrainian equivalent of the N-word uh, that they will use instead of saying Ukrainian, because they, they disavow the very notion of Ukrainian autonomy, value, worth, and dignity. And this invasion of 
the nation of Ukraine is in no small part an assault on those values. With that kind of ethnic strife in the background, it seems like when Americans talk about or think about the war in Ukraine, we're sort of being drawn into strife we don't fully understand. Do you think that's fair? I'm thinking of uh, like when Zelensky came to visit. Yes. The way the press talked about him reverted to some of those same tropes we saw. Absolutely. I saw repeated references to Zelensky as a a drug dealer, a mob boss. Uh, uh, They made comments about his clothing. Uh, Called him a welfare queen? Yeah. uh, No, absolutely. Uh, The welfare queen one was – that's straight from the playbook. Uh, And and these these type things that – they're they're not just – written by trolls but people with standing people with platforms people with followings and that kind of language that kind of abusive behavior being directed at someone who who really has given us in the 21st century from my perspective a a stellar example of crisis leadership globally we just have a leadership vacuum and here's this man who who's filled it that's not to say he's he's perfect or anything like that. No, no human is. But uh, he has stepped into this crisis and and faced it. I, I was given at Christmas time a, a book of speeches by uh, Zelensky, and the introduction itself was very powerful. As uh, someone was writing uh, about his greatest speeches, and they said his best speech was his shortest. It was the speech he filmed that that first night uh, after the full day of bombardment and the uh, miles and miles of uh, Russian soldiers marching uh, to besiege Kiev. There was great speculation that Zelensky had fled. And uh, Zelensky pulled out his phone and filmed a selfie video with his uh, uh, colleagues and the gist of that video, a very short video, was we are here. We're here. And that's the way it's going to be. And that, that sort of embodied, incarnational, present leadership down with the people is something that has uh, really rallied their nation. Yeah. And so I don't presume that everyone listening to this is going to share the same, you know, politics or even the same view of the conflict necessarily. Just, I bring up that treatment of Zelensky in the U.S. and the way the press, some elements in the press reverted to cheap tropes, things, things we would have seen, I say 20 years ago, but it's never really gone away. We're used to seeing that done to black folks. And the fact that they pivoted so easily and did it to him kind of out of nowhere from a lot of people's perspective, I think it demonstrates the kind of ethnic component to this that I think blindsided a lot of folks. Yes. And I I think you'll see a a real parallel between the people who are anti-Ukraine and anti-Zelensky and those who continue to be, to all intents and purposes, anti-black in our society. The, The people who will casually and comfortably say racist and prejudiced things about black men and women 
are the same people, in my observation, who will say the most outrageous and outlandish things about Ukraine and Zelensky. There's this thing called the horseshoe effect where, you know, you have the far left and the far right, and they both look very similar to each other. So certainly the far left is not guiltless in this, but there's uh, a a good number of uh, so-called conservatives or uh, right-wing people online who are uh, constantly going on about Ukraine this, Ukraine that, in a a very anti-Ukrainian way, repeating tropes that are frighteningly parallel to the things that they they say and write about black people. It's honestly really depressing to think about just- Oh, it is. (laughs) The ways ways we treat each other and by professing Christians. And by professing Christians who claim to be working to preserve some kind of vision of Christianity mm-hmm. and are willing to mm-hmm. willing to turn on their brothers and sisters of different ethnicities. It's well, just, I, I think this also exposes some of the, the dangers of uh, so-called Christian nationalism, which as a Baptist, I disavow the very concept. But uh, the, uh, the sort of Christian nationalists online you will find are, in my experience, uniformly pro-Russia, pro-Putin, or if not that, at least anti-Ukraine, anti-Zelensky. And, and, and the mind boggles. It makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, but it's a warning that there are people who are, are willing to see atrocities committed to maintain or achieve their vision. What do you as a pastor in Europe wish American Christians understood about ethnicity and ethnic unity? I think a lot of the discourse is very Americocentric on all sides of the issue. And so there are times where I will, as uh, someone living in the United Kingdom, um, will uh, read the content of justice-minded, anti-racist, brothers and sisters, and I think the Americocentric nature of the discourse has led to some unhelpfully sweeping statements that can unhelpfully reduce the issue and, and, and can pose a challenge for us in other parts, even of the West, as American issues often get imported or imbibed into our context. So uh, I'm saying that as as someone who has uh, a heart for not only reconciliation, but justice, racial justice. And uh, I'm saying that to like-minded brothers and sisters that the global voice, people talk about listening to global voices, but often in my experience in the American context, pro-justice environments, that even those global voices are not truly global. Uh, they are talking about Americans of color, as it were. And I, I really would like to, to see people uh, understanding that the issue is actually f- bigger than black and white. Uh, it is not less than that. And even in places like Ukraine, where there is uh, uh, this ethnic problem that we've discussed, th- there is in both Ukraine and Russia a racial problem with white and black people. We cannot deny that. 
I, I just think we need to expand the discourse to include not only uh, social constructs of race, but also biological realities of ethnicity. And I think that would actually help and improve our conversations. In the UK, people treat anyone who's not English often in very prejudiced ways. Uh, at the same time, uh, those prejudices uh, transcend sometimes racial barriers. I, I had a, a man uh, who was supposed to be quoting for a, a new door to our apartment, and he uh, was of uh, Caribbean heritage. And uh, we had a great conversation, and it was, it was going really well and all of that. And then he just casually made a comment about how the area had really gone downhill since the arrival of the Eastern Europeans. And I was thinking, this, this is a man who, if not him personally, his parents, when they came to the UK, would have been greeted by signs that said, no dogs, no blacks, no Irish. And in that moment, I kind of froze. I, I, I missed a chance to say, look, my, my wife is one of those Eastern Europeans. Watch what you say, mate. But um, I, I, I was speechless. It took me aback. So we also have to be careful uh, that those who have been victims of racism, those who have been victims of uh, abusive behavior or prejudice, do not themselves dish that out to others that they, they dislike. So um, that's coming from um, a, a friendly voice, I hope, uh, uh, an ally, whatever you want to, to call me. Uh, those are things that I think uh, we who are justice-minded uh, would benefit from hearing. And I, I have much to say to those who are not justice-minded, but I'm not sure that we have time for all of my thoughts for them. Well, we probably should wrap up. Uh, that just means we'll have to get you back on here at some point. With the magic of technology, we Sounds can get good. you from UK. So we'd love to have you back. Brother, thank you so much for your time, for your insight. Thank you for the work you're doing in England. Um, we'd love to pray together before we end the time. Would you open us and I'll close? Yes. Great God and most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you for saving us and sanctifying us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we are not the finished article. We continue to grow. We listen, we learn, we change. We submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for this. Lord, in our uh, uh, nations, we, we see strife that grieves us deeply. We ask for your mercy and for your patience. For those of us who are pastors, uh, I pray that we would love our congregations well and wisely in such a way that we, uh, we do not fear ethnic diversity. We do not fear cultural diversity and we, we do not mirror the culture and its uh, historic and continuing prejudices and abuses, but rather we are unique and distinct. I pray, Lord, that you would help my brothers and sisters in 
the USA on this trip, I've seen probably more diversity in the communities than ever before as people from around the world settle, and yet I do not see much difference in the churches. Lord, again, have mercy, and may we, never mind the nations around the world that churches are often sending people to, may they reach the nations on their doorstep with the good news of Jesus Christ and with lives of of justice, kindness, and humility before you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for Ryan. Thank you for saving him. Thank you for giving him godly influences in his life, uh, such as his dad. Lord, thank you for the work you've given him to do in pastoring in London. We pray that you would bless it. Uh, even as my brother talks here, Lord, I just I thank you for the heart you've given him for uh, the nations, the heart for the lost, the heart for unity among your people. Um, Lord, I pray that we would imitate him as he imitates Jesus in that. Um, Lord, give us all that kind of uh, passion and desire that uh, many would be saved and that we would be united um, as the Lord asked um, in the garden. And so, Lord, I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of United We Pray. You can find more information about our work at uwepray.com. That's U-W-E-P-R-A-Y.com. United We Pray is a donor-supported ministry, and if you are interested in supporting our work, you can find out more information on the website. In prayer.